Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Roll for Enterprise, a special Friday the 13th episode. Unlucky for some, I guess. We had some thoughts. We were wondering amongst ourselves just before we started recording, how technical should you be if you're a manager, if you're a marketer, if you're someone who's involved in a technical field, but you're not like frontline, hands-on keyboard, coder, engineer, ops person? And this cuts close to home for me because I used to be uh, these things. I've never been an actual engineer, but I've been an ops person. I've been pretty hands-on. And these days, supposedly, I spend all of my time in PowerPoint or in Google Slides for my sins. But uh, this week, I spent a good couple of days in the terminal. And it kind of brought back to me this question, you know, how technical should you be expected to be in these positions? At what point do you hand off? And at what point should you no longer be getting your hands dirty because you have something else to do? What's the correct balance between these two things? Because if you're a manager and you're in the terminal, you're in the code, you're in every little thing, you're probably not doing your management job, right? But on the other hand, if you don't understand your field, how can you manage it? Or as a marketer, how can you communicate it? It's a, a vexed question for me. So Mike, you had some thoughts that I'd like you to reiterate for the recording now. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Dominic. I, I appreciate it. Zach might have some strong opinions too. You know, it's funny because I I believe that um, every um, techie out there at some point is is faced with a challenge, right? I And it like from a techie perspective, like everybody worries that, oh my God, I'm going to lose my technical skills if I continue down road A, B, or C, right? But truth of the matter is, I don't think it matters that, that much in a management field, a marketing field. Now, it doesn't mean you don't need to know your subject matter. You still need to know it. You still need to know enough. I mean, I don't consider myself that technical from that aspect, but it takes on less and less meaning. And let's face it, the world is adjusting to it, right? Like when we talk about low code, no code, that's exactly what's happening, right? People are becoming a little less technical everywhere, but they're picking up technical skills in in other places. I mean... it's it's the natural evolution that that's happening and i don't think you want somebody super technical in some of these management and um and marketing areas uh like we have uh, in, in some companies I, I think you lose it zach agree disagree both i think it's multifaceted um if you work at a startup or at a technology company a lot of times they don't focus on marketing and they need to and uh sometimes the marketing is there but they're just not technical they don't understand the product and let's be honest it's very difficult and i'm talking from a marketing perspective it is very it's extremely difficult to have a marketing person that is uh also very technical that can up level that message so they are you know few and far between and i think like i said this is multifaceted because mike and you're talking about the business the whole goal is everybody has to be technical. I think this is what you're saying. Maybe, maybe not, but everybody has to be technical to some extent to, you know, you have to have some, you know, um, uh, technical abilities, right? But you're right. The whole no-code movement is 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 eliminating. I mean, do you need any more to be a, a coder? You know, no, probably not. Not as much as you used to. But from my lens, when I think of that, Mike, I think of, okay, well, I'm in a technical startup and uh, there is no doubt that uh, we needed our to uh, hone in our message about a year ago uh, when I joined. And that's, um, you know, you need to be technical to do that. So uh, there's, I don't know, I guess, yes and no, Mike, to both. Is this why sometimes when I get marketing messages, they don't make sense to me because it's non-technical people writing it? Or is that part of the spin? Or maybe it just went through a lot of hands before it got to you. So the technical person, the, the actual hardcore engineer who came up with the thing, 
explains it to the technical marketer and the technical marketer works with a technical writer and the technical writer works with the website copy editor and it's a game of telephone and by the time you get to the end of it the message may or may not make any sense anymore here's something else that happened to me this week which reminded me of a william gibson quote if you've only ever seen johnny mnemonic the film try to wipe that from your memory i'm talking about johnny mnemonic the book and there's or the story as actually as it, as it was and the quote goes these days though you have to be pretty technical before you can even aspire to crudeness so what i was doing was i was trying to export some graph data from a website the details aren't particularly important but it turns out the graph is an svg and I couldn't just take a screenshot because it was cluttered. So I ended up having to go into the source code of the SVG graphic uh, to disable the bits I wanted and change the display of the bits I did want. And, you know, it was about 45 minutes into an editing session with a VI. I thought, I do wonder how many marketing people are doing this right now, as opposed to sitting in their nice, happy PowerPoint place. Probably more than we can imagine. People will pick up and learn what they need to learn. I mean, at some point, right? And when you look at the skills out, I mean, when you're hiring or, you know, you're, you're hoping to hire people who will be willing to learn and, and dabble in, in certain aspects. I mean, what we're talking about is not impossible, right? But there is a sense, I, I guess, Dominic, if you would say where, you know, you've done these skills before in the past and it, you know, they, they kind of creep back in eventually and if you need them you reuse them right uh, when i was you know i think the the clearest example of this is i was at ibm many moons ago and and this conversation always happened at ibm about um, people losing technical skills and, and being concerned as they let's say moved up the, the corporate ladder and i you know, at IBM, they would laugh at it. Is it right or wrong? And you look at IBM now, probably they want some more technical people, but it, it's, you know, it's, it's still, it still sticks to you. I, I would imagine, you know, I, I guess it just depends if you move into a field like marketing for the first time. And uh, that's the first job, you know, instead of moving from a more technical role to there. Yeah, that's the path I took more technical role to marketing. And I think uh, being an analyst along the way really helped me, right? So the ability, again, to articulate that message. It doesn't surprise me, Mike, that you receive things and it, it doesn't align. Um, there are startups that will win awards that have nothing to do with their technology, but it's it's how they're messaging and marketing themselves. And that just you know, goes downhill. So, yeah, I think it just it depends. It depends on if you're working for a true IT company, especially startups, you have to hone in that message. And I think you need to be technical. But outside of that, do are we talking about well, you just mentioned, right, this no-code movement. Well, I think we're eliminating a lot of that. Yeah, you, you know, the, the funny thing is if you refer to, like, uh, case studies we see of, like, companies that have made, like, certain technology decisions and they've just been, like, uh, disastrous, you know, you start to listen to that. And I, I think as you peel away layers, it, it comes down to somebody got sold something that really didn't work. I mean, I used to joke around with companies uh, moons ago that they would buy the latest technology, but it would stay in boxes in their in their data centers because they didn't know how to deploy it or they bought into somebody's, you know, you know, they were persuaded in a way and they didn't have the right technical background in the room or, or people with the technical know-how to talk about the implementation. I mean, at the end of the day, it always comes down to the ability to execute. And I think sometimes you don't have enough people who have the ability to execute in a room, uh, potentially arguing it and counter arguing it. But I, I think it's more about being, you know, able to challenge the technology, but I don't necessarily see that as somebody being technical that needs to actually be in that mindset, right? Yeah, and I've always been 
an advocate of skill stacking, the idea that you can be at the intersection of several different fields, and you maybe are not super in-depth on all of them, or at least not to the same level, but you can at least talk intelligently about all of them. And it works in all of these directions. Like if you're a coder and you're writing something, but you have deep domain knowledge, you're going to be more effective than someone who is maybe a better coder, more expert in that language and tool chain you're using, but does not deeply understand the domain. The person who has that domain expertise is going to, to be more successful at producing something that works in that domain. But the converse of that is once you work in larger organizations, once we're not talking startups, where you have specialists that are doing all of these different things, it changes to coordinating with teams of specialists rather than trying to hold all of that knowledge inside your own head. So you have to kind of click out a level in your Zoom, so to speak. And it's just recognizing that moment. And, you know, this is all personal because I'm hiring for my team. So I'm, I'm thinking once again about how to do that best, how to not micromanage a team, get out of their way, but enable them, give them structure, work with other teams, which is the key part in a large organization. If you take a step back, right, how many times have we been in a room where we have something that's been implemented and no one knows how to support it? It's very complicated. And why? It's because like, some really technical like genius built it and an organization can't support it or worse the technical genius built the thing built the thing according to the fashion of the day tying an onion to their belt and everything and then walked away and they were the only person who understood it deeply enough to make it work <laughs> or, or is it or is this the flip of it i mean what about flipping this on its head and saying how much business acumen do these technical people need to have right maybe it's the other way around too i see that a lot where People are so technical that they can't sell a product because they're so technical. I, they can't talk to muggles anymore. Right, right. I mean, so is this like is this a skill that these IT people need to have? I mean, Mike, you deal with them. Wouldn't you like somebody that understands the business side a little bit more instead of being super technical when they come to meet with you or try to have a meeting? Too, they're they're too focused on the sale to be worried about my business, and that's a a, a big problem, right? So they never understand. Uh, what's really happening at the ground level. But don't kid yourself. I mean, there are people in some IT organizations that don't know what's happening at the ground level of their uh, their actual business. I mean, as, as bad as it sounds, right? I mean, uh, it happens everywhere. Um, and, and you see it, you know, I, I love talking to some um, some IT people out there and then talking to people from their business and you, you start to realize like, man, there's a, there's a really big disconnect here. And it, it doesn't take long uh, to realize that as soon as you start talking to um, to certain business people. But I, I guess, you know, that's another thing that I'm seeing change a bit is like who these, uh, who these like tech companies are talking to, or these technology providers are talking to, they're starting to talk to more and more of the business people and not so much of IT in some cases, right? Yeah, because they have the pain. Yeah, yeah. They're the ones who have the pain, who you can really solve problems for and uh, uh, kind of um, dig your heels into a, a company, right? But, uh, you know, it's hard for them to get that door open, right? So, you know, it's funny, it's, uh, I would say, oh, probably six, seven years ago, I was working for a startup and we started introducing technical account managers. So just thinking about what you were saying, you know, people just want to make the sale, they're focused on sales. Um, I, I see more tech companies doing this, right? Technical account managers, those kind of roles where, you know, they're no longer looking at the sales guys just being a, hey, let me take you out to dinner, you know, let's let's go to a ball game or whatever. I know it's a different topic, but I like what you said, Mike, about salespeople always trying to sell. It's their job to sell, 
but should it be um, or should they approach it differently? That's probably a different topic for another day. Yeah, the advice I always give salespeople, and I'm putting together some sales training right now, so this is all very much top of mind, uh, is to, to ask more questions. You can always ask more questions. And once you understand the business of the other person, the sale will either fall into place so naturally, neither of you really realize what happened, or you'll realize you need to walk away because you don't have anything to sell to this person. And either is a good result, right? I mean, obviously, we'd prefer to get the deal. But if you can avoid wasting six months of everyone's time and not get the deal anyway, if you can get that clear no on day one, then everyone's better off. I'm curious, Mike, how is it selling during this, uh, you know, during this COVID crisis? I mean, I- are you talking to salespeople and, and are they selling different to you, uh, differently to you? Uh, that's a multifaceted question. I think, you know, the projects we have running with uh, certain vendors, they continue to run and we continue to talk. I mean, if uh, if you tell me what's, you know, who's reaching out, I, I don't think there's too many people reaching out like um, for face-to-face meetings, right? I mean, that's that's gone or, or even talking on the phone. Uh, I think I've shared in previous podcasts, I mean, LinkedIn, I mean, somebody has told somebody that, you know, the way to get to people is LinkedIn. And I, I'm, I'm typically pretty, pretty open on LinkedIn where I'll, I'll, I'll respond to you and, uh, and start a conversation, even if I don't know you. Uh, but I've kind of stopped doing that and started to treat it more like email where, yeah, I, I just don't answer. Um, the email spam, well, I call it spam. They might not call it spam, but the, the, the spam coming to me is just like crazy. The, the stuff they're writing in the emails, I think I share some with you guys and, uh, they're quite amusing where, you know, you want to answer just to just to call them uh, morons, but you try not to. <laughs> so uh, apologies for anybody listening who's, who sent me emails. But it's it's real funny. I mean, it's 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 all over the place. Um, but but to be honest, it, it comes down to like what what problems do I have today and, and how do we go about it from from today? And, you know, y- y- you got to know. You know, you have to build a relationship. I, I think they're having a, a struggle building relationships. But if we're looking to solve a problem, we're typically researching it ourselves and, and reaching out uh, to companies out there uh, on our own rather than an account manager who, who comes in and, and tells us what we need, right? Yeah, it's a zero-touch marketing that Google espouses. Basically, the idea is that prospective customers have gone and done the research. They've hit your public website. If you have an open source version, if you have a, an evaluation version, they probably downloaded that, tried it, maybe even built a whole project already. And then comes your first contact with the salesperson. And so you need a different breed of salespeople. You need a different approach because the old approach won't work. And not just because we're all locked up indoors and can't go to the golf course or the steak restaurant. If you have a customer who's willing to vouch for you and, and talk well about you. Oh, that's gold. Yeah, that's gold. And the thing that we see, at least I do, if I'm looking for a certain skill set to come in as a consultant or whatever, I'll, I'll talk to other people in in the area who they've worked for and so on that have delivered results. And then we'll try to, you know, replicate those results here because they've done it at another company in the area. I think that speaks a lot more rather than me having a relationship with a tech company and saying, Hey, you know, how do you do A, B, or C? Then I'm going down one path that I don't know their history. Of course, everything they've been successful at, of course, they're going to tell me that they're great and they have a depth on the bench. But sometimes I think salespeople do anything for us sale and no 
Surely not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably insulting half the account managers out there. You know why they always wear those suit jackets? It's because if they take them off, you can see the slot in the back where the coin goes in. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably true. But it's their job, right? That's the thing. It's their job. And a lot of times, that's the company behind them that's forcing them to do that. And all these companies put a lot of pressure on these sales guys. I, I agree with you, by the way. So we put a ton of pressure on salespeople. And I'm involved in a bunch of sales training, as I said, but... We always tell people to you know, understand the business, give value. Uh, we definitely coach them that you may be speaking to someone who has a lot more knowledge about our product than you do because they've been playing with the open source version for a long time. So kind of assume that going in, don't push it on them. When I have conversations with, uh, with salespeople who are pitching me, the ones who give value are the ones who've taken the time, they ask questions, they understand my need. And then they answer based on that. They're not pitching their product. That's why user groups are having a big comeback. Because one of the problems with working on references is, yes, it's super, super powerful. But you can burn out your reference customers, especially if you're a small startup, you're starting out, you only have a handful of implemented customers. The definition of your business as a startup is you're looking for that exponential growth. So that means exponentially more people wanting to talk to the previous wave of implemented customers. First couple of calls, they take them. After that, they start to get a little bit testy. And after that, they stop taking your calls and stop paying your renewal checks, and that's death. So you need to be a little bit careful about how you manage your reference customers as vendors. On the other hand, I'll say one thing that was an eye-opener to me was I've been uh, talking to references for a purchase I'm considering making at work. I think as vendors, we focus a lot on trying to find the perfect customer, one where they've implemented the whole product suite, every functionality, everything went perfectly, the project was finished ahead of time, ahead of budget, et cetera, et cetera. Now, with any luck, you have some of those as a vendor, right? But you don't necessarily always need to hunt for that perfect customer. It can be equally illuminating as a user to speak to someone who's yeah, we're somewhere along the way, we ran into some issues, here is our plan for surmounting those. And even that is super, super interesting. I always say the strength of a, of a team is really how they, they handle the, the hiccups and the issues that come along, right? Because that shows resiliency. Right. So it's you're absolutely right, uh, Dominic. And it also tells me you don't have to be in that perfect situation for this product to be a fit. You can also be kind of in a modified situation and the product will pivot with you and the team will pivot with you. Uh, so if I'm not exactly your ideal customer, then we can work it. So references, absolutely. Just don't burn them out. User days are great because you can take your your reference customer out to dinner once, stand them up in front of a dozen of your prospects and you don't waste too much time. And yeah, don't necessarily look for the perfect one even an imperfect reference is super valuable and user groups it's just a digital way of word of mouth right and i yeah you know it's 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 quite important because then people i mean if they're talking about your product on a user group it either means they love it or hate it there's no like in between right so uh, that goes a long way too you know the the strongest convictions i see are when my organization i have some really technical people who will come to me as a group and say, we need product A, B, or C, and this is why. And then I'll start to ask the questions like, what gap is it filling? What, like, why are you really after this? And it becomes quite an interesting conversation because they know if they're coming to me within the team, they've done their research. And I'll, I'll ask questions like, okay, how'd you hear about it? How did it get pitched to you? You know, not, not to make sure they're just giving me the marketing take of, of some 
company's marketing department, right? That it's it's truly genuine and, and there. And, and of course, um, then it has a bigger chance of staying within the organization because you know that there is a, a certain conviction towards it. And commitment, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And looping back to the beginning of this topic, that's why, in my opinion at least, if you're selling to technical people, even if you're the salesperson, uh, in quotes, you want to be at least somewhat technical, have at least some level of understanding. You probably have a pre-sales engineer, someone like that, that you can fall back on when it comes to running the proof of concept or what have you. But you want to have at least an understanding of the concerns that these people have, the world that they live in, in order that you yourself can be credible and coach them so that they can go and have their conversation with their manager in which they are pitching on your behalf for your product. You're not going to get into that conversation very often these days, and this is properly big ticket item. But someone is having that conversation, and you'd better be communicating with them correctly. Otherwise, Mike throws them out of his office. Yep, yep. Or they never make it in. They never make it in. Yeah, that's the that's the that's the trick right there. Never make it in. <laughs> but but it's interesting on how we went from like talking about how technical you need to be to talking about how it progresses in an organization because I think you do need a balance of both. But somebody can take a role and not be technical as long as you have like technical people around you who can help you get there. And certainly, I mean, I. I don't consider myself technical, like I've said earlier on, but I learned from a lot of technical people, right? As we as we talk through things, and I think you have to be uh, willing to listen, willing to learn, and it's really about the mindset, uh, to be honest, more than more than anything else out there. Okay, so I wanted to link back to something Zach said earlier about uh, low code, and there was a, a news item that popped up in my feed this morning. So Guido van Rossum joined Microsoft. And if you're on Slashdot about 1999, 2000, imagine going back in time and telling yourself then that this had happened. Half of the people on Slashdot, they'd have aneurysms, and the other half just wouldn't believe you. Uh, Guido Van Rossum, in case you don't know, is a creator of Python. He'd been in sort of retirement, and now he announced he's joining Microsoft. And the reason I find that interesting, there's all sorts of conversations we could have about Microsoft and their role in open source these days as compared to, you know, 20 years ago. But the interesting angle to me is that Python itself, what's its role in a future in which many people are trying to drive things in the direction of low code, no code, uh, people not having to, to touch code to get their hands dirty versus Python, which I don't actually know Python, just to be very clear, I can just about read it. But its role is to be a Swiss army knife of data to let people do stuff uh, quite easily and implement their ideas. Where do you see that going, Zach? I think you're closest to to this world. What do you think? Well, first of all, what you said about Microsoft is powerful. Let's think about that 20 years ago. 20 years ago, Cisco was the highest market cap company in the world. Now they're struggling. Microsoft was still there. Netscape was still a thing, right? Right. Well, twenty years ago, I mean, <laughs> AWS wasn't wasn't there. You know, uh, you know, it wasn't really GCP. So, isn't that powerful statement for Microsoft? And let's be honest, Microsoft announced what three months ago they were, you know, they're now adopting this open source and Linux platforms. So, I think they are building that. That's what I think. I think this goes back to their. Oh yeah, Microsoft is the biggest Linux yeah, vendor. Maybe it was six months ago. Mike, I think you might have mentioned it too. I forget, but in the last six seven months. They're starting to double down on this. And this is, uh, you know, so really I ask myself, is there, they've got something bigger brewing, but this is Microsoft. They always do. They always know what they're doing. But I, I also think you're right on the other aspect too, is it doesn't necessarily mean that, hey, we need, you know, we need Python code and everything we do. I don't think so at all. I think this is, there's something else going on here. Um, I, I still believe in this no code movement. I still believe that, um, you know, 
I think script, at least from my perspective, I call them script-driven networks. I mean, those are a thing of the past. I mean, people were writing scripts seven, eight years ago for their networks to run. And you know, I think that was kind of kind of crazy because now you've got scripts everywhere. And, and, and uh, you know, I think the less code, the better, quite honestly. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if that helps, but uh, that's my thought on it. Mike, what do you think being a Talking about Microsoft and what they're doing. Microsoft's got a really long vision. I I mean, they're in it for the long haul. I, I think when you start to look at it and, and how they're embedded in the enterprise, they see stuff that we don't. And I think they see it before we do. But, I, you know, don't ask me what it is. But I think that, like, most of the plays or the moves they've made, it's it's kind of like this long chess game. And, you know, they might be second to AWS right now in the cloud space, but I don't think that's going to last long. I really think they understand more about the enterprise than than anybody else. So, yeah, it's not it's not shocking to see these moves that are a bit, um, yeah, don't make sense to us at the beginning. No, I think it totally makes sense for today's Microsoft to have Guido Van Rossum on the inside. It's just the contrast with the, the old Microsoft. Yeah, to where it was. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's really gone through um, a, a change in the way they think, the way they they operate. It's. It, I mean, this is not the the Microsoft that released Windows ninety five and. Uh, yeah, it's a totally different company if you if you really look at it. And, and let's think about Microsoft. I mean, they they have GitHub. I mean, they we talked about this several years ago. I know Mike, you and I did, right? Uh, we talked about now that you have the visibility into everything people are writing, everything that they're doing. Uh, LinkedIn as well. I mean, they are able to see what the job market is doing, what jobs are out there. Microsoft, make no doubt about it, they are playing chess. Everyone else is playing checkers. I'm sorry, Mr. Bezos, but you are not going to win. I mean, it's Microsoft is a step ahead. So. Uh, you know, this whole move to Linux and everything, all these decisions aren't made, you know, just, you know, obviously they're not made on a whim. We know that. But I think they're they're aided by the fact that they have these insights these other companies don't have. I mean, it's pretty powerful. I mean, I think GitHub and LinkedIn were a couple of their best acquisitions. I think there's something there. If you think about like the the combined data set that they now have, I mean, it really allows them to make data-driven uh, decisions so much better than other organizations. If you start to combine like... Um, you know, Office 5 statistics with LinkedIn. I mean, they they just they just know more of what's there. You know, I think unfortunately there still is a lot of this anti Microsoft sentiment in, in in enterprise IT, right? If you look at companies there, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bash on Google here for a minute, but the Google Suite, the the G Suite, whatever they call it, the the basic, the advanced. I mean, Gmail and and the oh G Suite is like terrible, right? Oh. And Horrible. I, you know, and in any startup, anybody who starts up, like they'll they'll go to the Gmail uh, version of email, right? Immediately, immediately. But I think if you start to give companies the taste of Outlook and uh, and Office three six five or Microsoft three six five as they call it now, I, I think you have. I, I don't think people would go back to to the Google variant at, at all. So here's my thoughts. We're almost at time. So I'll throw this out quickly and we'll see if we decide it's worth a full episode. So Microsoft in the 90s and 2000s took off through rampant piracy, basically. Uh, everyone had Windows at home. They had uh, often a pirate copy of Windows and pirate copy of Office quite possibly. But this became then their standard, the thing that they were expecting when they went to work. They put office skills on their CV and companies would actually buy the licenses. And so everything worked out. Google have run this playbook as well. They give away Gmail and G Suite, Google Photos, uh, all of these things. 
And it's driven them to the point that companies default to this and it's kind of the default email address, the top in all of those autocomplete menus, the top option is always Gmail. Except they just announced that they're killing that. They're killing the goose that laid the golden eggs. Maybe they've figured out they own enough of the market. They don't have to care anymore. Uh, they've announced that Google Photos and Google, you know, the Office Docs uh, will count towards the 15 gigs of free storage every user gets. I wonder whether this is the opening for the next thing that does to Google what Google did to Microsoft. Whether it's Microsoft coming back or whether it's something net new. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, and I think it I, I think it will it, it will turn. I, I I see Google very. You know, I hate to say this, but I see them very weak. I I don't see like many people adopting GCP. I, I don't see, you know, th- there was a talk in time when people were like uh, Outlook users and had Exchange servers everywhere where they were debating whether they were going to go O365 or to Google for cloud email. Well, that doesn't happen anymore. That like everybody's O365 if you're on like Exchange and, and moving to uh, O365. So, you know, it's... It, I, I agree with you, Dominic. I, I think the tides are turning, and I think I, I hate to say it, but Google has lost focus. I, I think they're really missing uh, missing focus here. And yeah, maybe it's all the legal issues that they have, uh, but there is a um, there, there is a focus problem at, at Google, and also an identity crisis too. And I think so, at least. I mean, what what are they? They're a little bit of everything, and so I, I think that could be a problem. But I agree. By the way, GCP. I'm not a big fan of it. As a matter of fact, I'm not a fan of it. Uh, however, a lot of startups use it because it's you know cheap. It's there. But I think Microsoft pricing is there too. So I, I agree with you, Mike. I think if somebody gets a taste of Microsoft, it's lights out. I mean, Google is, they just don't focus on it. I don't, I don't know what they focus on anymore. I don't know that they know it. Yeah, I, I think some people look at Microsoft as like the non-techie solution. Like, ah, those people, they're, they're, they're not into the weeds like us. Or, you, you know, I think there is like, some people look at Microsoft as if a company goes that way, it's a bit of an inferior mindset. Uh, And and that's really dangerous because I think it's going to cost some companies in in, in their thinking, right? It's like, you you know, you you look at even people who go AWS, they'll they'll never look at Azure and and think that it's, you know, inferior product, Uh, you know, be known that it's going to, it's going to change. So I I think it's a, it's a bit um, dealing from a weak deck right there. Maybe we should have a, a more thorough conversation ranking the, the three mega providers. But uh, we're, we're at time, so let's go to some quick recommendations. I want to try something different this week, pull the hive mind and have a reverse recommendation. I was kind of hoping that Tuesday's Apple event would feature a new Apple monitor because I want one, but I don't want to spend seven grand on it, which would be worth more than both of my first two cars uh, that put together. And it was kind of weird to see them plugging a Mac Mini into a monitor that costs literally 10 times as much. So Mac Mini is 700 bucks. The uh, Apple Pro Display XDR that they plugged this into is seven grand. <laughs> Here we go, Apple. Here so, we go. And if you have a, version, have a, battery, eight, if, if you have a version that's two generations older, it'll start flickering on you out of the blue when you do a firmware. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to spend money on a nice thing, just not that much. So what 4K monitor should I get? And Apple used to have the LG 5K, and they seem to discontinued that. And there aren't really any other 5K options that's decent. So... Let's stick to 4K. I want a 4K 26, 27 inch, something along those lines. 
uh, USB-C has got to talk to, to a MacBook, obviously. Dominic, why a 4K monitor? Like, what's the need for 4K in your life? Because I've got a second 4K monitor beside it, and so my current HD main monitor looks really bad beside the big 4K. <laughs> it's purely that one. It sits between the Retina screen of the MacBook on one side and a 4K monitor on the other side, and it was fine until I did that, and now it looks like garbage. Yeah, see, I'm a I'm a curved monitor uh, fan, and Dell has this 49 inch, yes, 49 inch, which is the equivalent of two 27s next to each other, uh, curved monitor. And everybody who asks me about a monitor recommendation, this is what I I try to push on them. But there's also like 34 and 38 inch uh, variants, which are not bad. But the 49 is that that that's the Mac Daddy. I think that's what everybody needs in their life. I have a Dell curved monitor. I, I love it, although it's not the 49. It's the 30 something. I don't know, but I'm looking at it and I love it. It's good. Yeah, and that's what I'm using today. So there you go. I'm tempted. Well, let's see if the listeners have any other thoughts. How about you, Mike? Any recommendations this week? Yeah, go, go follow Twitter. Uh, Italians mad about food. I, I think uh, there's a great pasta discussion that everybody needs to partake and understand why uh, Italians are mad about food. <laughs> it's true. Pasta really does taste different when it's a different shape. Yes, yes, it's true. Gosh, Zach, did you get that? Did you, you got that right, Zach? Uh, yeah, yeah I, I don't know. Is it true? I, I don't know. I'm just listening. I believe I'm supposed to believe each of you that it's true. Yeah, make your mac and cheese with lasagna sheets and let me know how that tastes. <laughs> right. My recommendation is that Mike, you get a little more sleep. Okay, I need you to get some rest. <laughs> I I will. <laughs> I, I will, I will. We got some holidays here coming up, so that's uh, that, that's what I'm waiting for. There you go. Excellent. Looking forward to that. Okay. Well, with that, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to the two of you for joining me on this journey as ever. Follow the show on Twitter at Roll4Enterprise with a number four in the middle there or on our LinkedIn page. And please do send us suggestions for topics and guests for future episodes. We've got a couple of exciting guest topics coming up but uh, anything else is always welcome as well thank you all have a good one thank you everybody